All right. Nine to eleven. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Probably the most significant three verses in the book. Uh, I think this is kind of the hub of the book. And there's continual reference back to this fifth seal later in the book. The Lamb breaks the fifth seal and he sees an altar in heaven. And what's under it? Those who were persecuted. Yes. The souls of those who've been killed for the cause of Christ. Typically, what would be done on an altar? Sacrifice. And in the case of some sacrifices, what would be poured out at the base of the altar? The blood. From Leviticus 17, we know that the soul or life of the animal was in the blood. So the idea is these Christians have been sacrificed for the cause of Christ, and their soul, their blood, is underneath the altar. And this, their souls underneath the altar are doing what? Crying out with a loud voice, saying what? Yes. How long, God, before you judge and avenge our blood? Their deaths had been unjust. And appropriately, judgment and vengeance needs to be brought. Do you remember blood crying out in any other passage? Abel's blood crying out from the ground, Genesis 4. The idea is the very injustice of the act of, of, of Cain murdering Abel demands punishment. And so they are crying out, how long before you judge and avenge our blood? And what's the answer given to them? A little while. Um, there are more to die. There, yeah, we got to wait till there are some more that join you. Now, not wait a long time. Wait a little while. We're starting to imagine where these horses are going. They're going to be used against those who put the the souls of the Christians underneath that altar. Those who have martyred the faithful. But not quite yet. You know, so for the churches, they're learning, there's going to be some more that are going to join Antipas and others underneath the altar. And then God will judge and avenge the blood of his servants. Um, there's a couple of points here I'm going to make in practical terms. Would it be possible for a Christian today to be killed for the cause of Christ? Yes. Are you ready? You know, I mean, there's a lot of examples throughout the Bible of the persecution of God's people, even leading to their death. There's quite a few examples. If you started, you know, thinking about, you know, godly people who've been 
you know, martyred and tortured and beaten and imprisoned and, and all that. There's a lot of we, we We probably need more of a spirit of willingness to undergo whatever we have to go through. I don't know if that will happen to me in my lifetime or to you in your lifetime, but it's entirely possible. It certainly wouldn't be out of the question. I think we need to be more thoughtful about that and much more ready to risk our life or anything else for Christ. Here's a second practical point, then I'll let you talk. Is it right to desire the wicked to be punished? I would hear people saying that's sort of unchristian. It's not. (laughs) Clearly it's not from here. And it's not because it's not bad to desire what God desires. It's not bad for our will to conform to His will. In fact, that's a very good thing. Now, there's obviously more than one thing that needs to be said. God loves the wicked and wants for them to be saved. God hates the wicked and wants for them to be judged. Both things are true. The wicked that God hates and wants to judge are the wicked who refuse his offer of salvation and refuse to repent. There are those that refuse that. And what we want is God's side to win. And we want Satan and his forces to lose. And it's not wrong for us to pray imprecatory songs. It's appropriate. Thank you very much. Because that's what I was going to say. Because I have heard Christian brethren say that those Psalms of David, those Psalms, those aren't inspired because they because they're asking for things that God just you know doesn't agree with. And they've said, well, but then they'll say, well, they're in the Bible because God wants us to know what David was feeling at the time and know what that it's okay to feel that way. We certainly can't pray that way now. And I just totally disagree with that. Amen. And, and uh, I agree completely with what you said. Yeah. And we can't do that. If we do that, then what about what Paul wrote? You know, maybe God just wanted us to know what Paul thought. Right. You know, where do we draw the line? Exactly. Yeah. No the, certainly there are things that are recorded in the Bible that are not intended to be an inspired statement, like when the devil said, you won't surely die, but it's clear from the text that God is simply recording what was said, that it's not given as a model. The Psalms are given as a model. Yeah. There's a difference between recording a historical event accurately and a psalm which came from God and is there because he wanted David to write it down. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So Definitely. do you still need to do good to those people that are him? What does God do? Does he still do good to the wicked? Yeah. Yes, he does. So I think that's that's correct. We we do good. It is also not us that takes the vengeance. We allow God to do that. Um, but God even in this life brings the rain often on the just and the unjust. God even is benevolent to wicked people. Ultimately, he judges and brings vengeance upon them. That's his prerogative. We pray that he will do that. We don't do it ourselves. Yeah, yeah even in, in Psalm 109, which is one that people say, oh, well, we can't pray that. You know, David says, in return for my love, they act as my accuser. He's, he's still loving them. 
And Psalm 109 is quoted in the New Testament. Yeah. It's really yeah. difficult sometimes to uh, yeah. to He's sustain those ideas. Exactly. exactly. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. Not very good. Other comments and thoughts? Yes. A lot of times, our love for people is what leads them to want them to be punished. Like sometimes, a parent's love for a child leads them to punish them so that they'll stop doing it. And sometimes, if people are punished, it's because you want them to repent. And it's not really the people that you're hating. These are the people. Yes, there is truth in that for sure. There is chastening punishment, disciplinary punishment, that the purpose is to lead to repentance. There is also judgmental punishment, that the purpose is simply to bring judgment against the wicked. Some of the punishments of God are disciplinary. Some of them are simply judgments. When God punishes people eternally, it's not so that they can be blessed. It's so that justice can be done and they can receive what they ought to have. And uh, there are several passages, I know we don't say this, but there are a number of passages where God is portrayed as hating not only the deeds of the wicked, but hating the wicked as well. There's a sense in which God loves the world, there's a sense in which he hates the world. You know, understanding the balance there, of course, is our our challenge. Alright, other thoughts or comments on this? Alright, I'm going to give you a break now, I think that'd probably be good, we've uh, thought pretty... uh, uh, intensively uh, here for a while. You great comments, great uh, interest. We'll try to just break for ten or fifteen minutes uh, so we can keep going in this. But it's really fun to uh, do this. I appreciate your attention.